in the Word of God to, well, you go to John 15, John's Gospel, chapter 15. And as you do that, I want to read just a couple of verses uh, from John 14, uh, 15 and 16. And then where you have gone in John 15, we'll come to that a little bit later. I'll give you the text of that later. But first of all, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that the entrance of your word gives light. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet, it's a light unto our path. We bless you that your word is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, goes right to the very joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the very thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your precious word today. We ask that our eyes would be opened. And Lord, as the psalmist said, that we might see wondrous things out of your law. So Lord, open our, the spiritual ears of our heart this morning. And may the Holy Spirit plant this word deep into our spirits. And Lord, that it may grow and bear fruit in the days that lie ahead. And we give you thanks and we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just read a few verses first of all. John 14, verses 13 and 14. These are the words of Jesus. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And John 15, 16. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. In John 16, verses 23, 24, and 26. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Unto now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I want you to imagine this scenario for a moment. One day you're sitting at home and you receive a call from a highly respected firm of solicitors. And they inform you that after months of careful research and investigation that you are the sole heir and beneficiary of an estate of a distant relative, maybe a third cousin, just say, and this gentleman was extremely wealthy. And you just happened to be his nearest and only living relative. And that his estate is worth 100 million pounds. Or in Tessa's case, 155 million dollars. It's a big number, isn't it? Or my Filipino friends, 750 million pesos. Can you imagine that, Joshua? That's a lot of pesos, isn't it? How would you feel? What would you think? Shocked? Amazed? Astounded? Gobsmacked? All of the above, no doubt. I certainly would. But after you get over the initial shock of discovering that you were the recipient of somebody's will, then you'd have to deal with the reality 
of all of that wealth that has been left to you. Because it would be beyond your wildest dreams. In fact, it is so mind-boggling that you cannot even begin to fathom it. And so, if that happened, would it change your life? I bet it would. You would never, ever again have to even remotely concern yourself about any material need that you may have. Wouldn't even ever be a thought in your mind again. Would all be taken care of for you and for your family for the rest of your natural life. Well, what Christ promises here is far more incredible than that. Only Jesus could have made such a promise that I've read to you this morning. Only the Lord could have said such a thing. Only Christ has got the wherewithal and the ability to back it up. In fact, these words of Jesus are so far-reaching in their implications for you and for me that we scarcely can believe it. We actually struggle to believe such a thing. We rarely ever grasp the reality of this truth because we probably think it must be too good to be true. Can Jesus really mean anything you ask? Whatever you ask. Can it really mean what you will, what you desire? Or is God just teasing us? Is God just messing with our mind? Or is what Jesus said absolutely, for sure, without question, true? Well, I think that we all know the answer to that, don't we? It is true. So what's the problem? Why do we struggle with this? Why do I struggle? Why do you struggle with this? I want you to notice here that Jesus gives us an insight into how this is all possible. Here's a key truth. In fact, it's a condition. Whatever you ask in my name, whatever is the promise, in my name is the proviso. That's the condition. Now, surely he meant more when he says, in my name. Surely he meant more than just reciting his name or, or tacking his name onto the end of our prayers, which we do, which is fine, which is good. But surely he meant much more than that because we do that anyway. So what does he mean here by in my name? Asking in my name. Going in my name, coming in my name. What entitlements, what privileges, what authority, what status, what standing do you think that we have in his name? That's what we need to get to this morning. Now, two things about this. Firstly, when you think about somebody's name, you're thinking about the person themselves. You're not just thinking of a name. 
but you're thinking about the person themselves. Even if you didn't know the person, you'd be wondering what the person was like if their name came up in conversation. And it springs to mind, if you know the person, it springs to mind their character, their, their temperament, their disposition, their integrity, their honor. Those would be the things that you think about. And whoever's name that would, would come to mind would immediately conjure up, whether consciously or subconsciously, the kind of person that you are thinking about, would it not? And I believe this is why in Psalm 138, verse 2, why the Scriptures say, For you have magnified your word above all your name. And as I often said when I read that Scripture, the reason why God does that is because His name is only as good as His word. Your name is only as good as your word. If somebody thinks about you or think about me, what conjures up in their mind? Because our name is only as good as our word. If we're a person who keeps our word, if we're a person of integrity, a person of honor, if we're a person of good disposition, of character, all of those things, that's what they'll think. If we're not, if we're somebody who keeps breaking promises, somebody we can't trust their word, that's exactly what will come up in mind when their name is mentioned. And so God says, in effect, I have magnified my word even above my name because my name is only as good as my word. In Proverbs 22 and verse 1, it says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great wealth. Better to be a poor man with a good name than a rich man with a bad name, isn't it? And so, his name is full of honor and integrity and character because he is faithful, he's honorable, he's dependable. In Hebrews 1.14 it says, God has given him a more excellent name than all the rest, than Moses and Abraham and Melchizedek and all those characters that's mentioned early on in Hebrews. God has given him a name that is more excellent than all of those. And those characters had great names. But Christ is far above all of that. Philippians 2 and 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And so when Christ says that whatever you ask in my name, then we immediately begin to think of his character, his nature, his integrity, his honesty, his faithfulness, his accountability, his dependability, all of those good things. And so he's wanting us to remember his name, who he is, what he is like. Now there's a, secondly now, there's a, there's a, there's a legal side to this. Remember in the Great Commission, Jesus instructed and commissioned his disciples to go into this world and do certain things in my name you shall. And so he gives us the legal right to do this. There's a vital side to this, but there's a legal side to this. 
And so whenever we go in his name or we come in his name or we ask in his name or we speak in his name or we preach in his name or we prophesy in his name, whatever we do in his name, he has given us the legal right to use his name as his children. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on this, does he not? When he talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is in a very privileged position. An ambassador is someone who works and serves and speaks on behalf of another, on behalf of his king or his queen or his president or his prime minister. He has been given certain rights and privileges and responsibilities to act on his master's behalf. He has no agenda of his own. What he hears, he speaks. What he's ordered to do, he does on behalf of his master. And so in that sense, we are ambassadors for Christ. We go in his name, we come in his name, we speak in his name, we do in his name because we are his ambassadors. We have no agenda of our own, or at least we shouldn't have. It's his agenda. It's his kingdom, and he's the king of the kingdom, and we are simply his ambassadors. Can you say amen to that? Now, it seems to be that the early church certainly grasped that concept. In fact, if you come with me to Acts chapter 2, you see this right away in Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. In verse 16, he, he recites that great prophecy of Joel, the prophet. In verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, for your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Excuse me, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, note this, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes on and said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken, sorry, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he gives that word that David said, and then when you go on right down, it says there, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized high in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice how he's using that name. It's so important. You'll see this in a moment or two. By the way, I just remembered the announcement I was supposed to make. Just when I read that scripture. All right. And it is, anyone who wishes to be water baptized, 
please let us know. There's already has been six people, six young people, has already submitted their names to Johnny Brady about being water baptized. So this is open for anyone. You could be any age. Maybe you've gone to church all of your life, but you've never been water baptized. Maybe you've been sprinkled. I don't know. We don't sprinkle in here. We fully immerse. And so if you're wanting to be fully immersed to follow the command of Christ himself, then please let us know and we will make arrangements in the foreseeable future to do this because we don't have the facility here. I have to borrow from a friend's church, but we can do that. He'll be very happy to loan us that. It's a great facility. So there's the end of the announcement. All right. Thank you, Lord. Now, chapter 3. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name. And then how you know that caused a whole big stir. And how the religious crowd then was out to get Peter and the apostles. And then it goes on to say, if I just break in here in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and determined to, uh, in the presence of Pilate, whom, and when he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses, and his name through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And then when you go into chapter 4, you'll see that Peter and John were arrested. And in verse 5, it came to pass on the next day that the rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and many who were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which the builders, which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, nor there is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And you read on down to verse 17. But so, that it's, this is where the, the, the hierarchy now, in a dilemma, what to do with them, said, well, we, we can't do much because the people takes them as prophets. But in verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no more in this name. So they called and commanded them not to speak at all or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter goes on to say, 
verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. It seems to me that the early church in particular very quickly realized the authority in that name. They knew he was dependable, he was honorable, he was faithful. They knew that in that name there was all of heaven to back that name up. And so they used that name to great effect. However, there is more to this truth we're saying this morning of asking in his name that we have looked at so far. So we must compare Scripture with Scripture. And that's why I ask you to turn to John 15. Because in John 15, verse 7 and 8, Jesus adds something to this. Verse 7 and 8. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So will you be my disciples. If you abide in me, now, Jesus in John 15 begins with that parable of the vineyard, particularly the vine and the branches. And if you were to count, you would see that the word abide in those nine verses, first nine verses of John 15, are mentioned ten times. And I would encourage you today sometime to take your Bible out and read them carefully, slowly. And take in. And you will see that this is the vital union between Christ and us. Between Christ and the Father. And between us and the Father. Remember we read whenever we did the study just was last week about John 17. Christ's great prayer for the church. And how he prayed that we might be one with him as he is one with the Father. And so this is the abiding in the vine. He's the vine, we're the branches. Without him, we can do nothing. And so there's this business of abiding. And again, Paul picks up on this too. And in Ephesians, he talks about the union between Christ and us in Ephesians. And first of all, he talks about a building with Christ being the chief cornerstone in Ephesians 2. Uh, then in Ephesians 3, he talks about a bride and Christ being the bridegroom. And then in, in Ephesians uh, 5, he goes on further. Sorry, Ephesians 3, Christ is the, the, we're the body and Christ is the head. In Ephesians 5, Christ is the bridegroom and we're the bride. And so the Apostle Paul takes what Christ has said about abiding and about being joined together. And he uses that in different illustrations. 
Uh, and a building is something that lasts. And a body is something that lives. And a bride is something that loves. And so our vital union between us and Christ, between us and the Father, is something that lives. And it's something that lasts. And it's something that loves. And so it's important that whenever we talk about abiding in Christ, that we begin to realize that, that Christ means something very tender and intimate and precious and vital. Something that's real. The more time we spend in his presence, the more we seek his face, the more we make him the center and circumference of our lives, the more we will begin to understand what it means to abide in him. It means more than just being saved. We're in him the moment we're saved. But it means more than that. It means abiding in him. It means drawing close to him, getting to know him, to know his heart, to know his purposes, to know his will. All of that is involved in abiding. I think that the psalmist understood something of that even way back in the Old Testament. If you look at Psalm 62, for example. In Psalm 62, it says, Truly my soul waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my tent, my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And in verse 5, My soul Wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is for Him. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And so you, over and over again in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I look for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. But then down in verse 6 it says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Somebody says, if you can't sleep, don't count sheep. Look to the shepherd. Think about the shepherd. And so the psalmist, it seems, was given to having nights when he was restless and he couldn't sleep. And he used that time to meditate upon the Lord. I tell you what, sometimes when you go to bed at night, you know, even if you're retired, and suddenly, I don't know if this happens to you, but suddenly a scripture pops into your mind. It happens to me, and a scripture comes into my mind. I could lie for an hour just musing and meditating and thinking. I just Sleep just goes. And, and sometimes, first thing when I wake up in the morning, a scripture will pop into my mind, and I think about it, and I meditate upon it. And so, this is what happens. And then in Psalm, uh, I think it's Psalm 27. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
And verse 4, one thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he will hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. There's something about the secret place, going into the secret place. In verse 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, there is a key, a great key to your whole experience with Christ is waiting upon the Lord. We struggle to wait, don't we? You know, if we meditate for five minutes, we look at our watch, we're ready to go, there's stuff to be done, there's people to see, there's things to do, and we just don't Wait. And it's not because we don't really have the time, because we have the time for a whole lot of stuff. And our whole day is filled with stuff instead of waiting and abiding in the presence of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean to say that your whole day is to be locked away in your room. We're not monastic. We're not like monks who go up the mountain to do that. But because we do have a life and we do have responsibilities and we have families, we have jobs, we have all of those things. But it's amazing the much time you've got if you really want to make the time, really. And there's nothing better to do than spending it somewhere by yourself, alone, your Bible on your knee, maybe singing, worshipping and seeking the Lord. Psalm 42 and 1, that was mentioned earlier by Clifford during the worship prayer. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul after you, O God. So living and abiding in Christ is essential when it comes to asking anything in my name. Now, second part of that verse. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall have or ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Now Jesus definitely here is linking his words abiding in us in relationship to our prayers. And maybe this is part of the reason why oftentimes our prayers doesn't seem to be effective as they should be because maybe his word is not abiding in us. It's one thing for us to abide in him. It's another thing for his word to abide in us. What does he mean by his words abiding in us? Or the word of God abiding in us. It means to make his word our own. It means to meditate upon his word, to ponder and prayerfully and carefully look at them and to seek to understand them and to be so strengthened and enlightened by them that it becomes a living truth to us. Now, as much as is my office is to preach and to teach the believers that meet here on Sunday, and I'll try never to shirk that responsibility, but it's your responsibility in your time in your way, in your home, to seek the Word of God. If all of you do is wait to hear me on Sunday, it's not enough. 
The Word of God will never abide in you if that's the case. But if you think about it during the week, if you meditate upon it, you know, in today's world, you can buy the Word of God on CD or an MP3. You used to get it on tape. Do they do tapes anymore? I don't think so. But you can get it. And you can put it into a machine. You can put it in your car. You can get it to seep into your very soul so that it's abiding in you. And the more you do that, the more of a word of God comes up into your spirit. You say, well, it, it, it's pretty difficult at times because there's, there's some scriptures that not easy to understand. That's right, and that's good because that means you've got to think about it a little bit more. It means you've got to dig in further. And you need to ask yourself questions about the Word of God. Read the Word of God, then ask yourself, what does this mean? And then you may read another scripture that seems to be saying the opposite. And you say, well, if, the, if that seems to be contradicting that, there must be a reason for that. I need to find that out. And I'm not going to rest until I do. And if I have to go to the Faith Mission bookshop and get a dictionary or get a commentary or get something, I'm going to find out what God means by this. And I guarantee you, once you begin to do that, the Word of God will begin to abide in your heart. And that's what it's supposed to do. You see, His Word is His will, isn't it? His Word reveals His purposes and His desires for our very lives. You cannot separate Him from His Word. You just can't do it. If we want Him, we will want His words this is why Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, you can't keep that which you don't know. So if you love me, look into my word. Understand my word. Keep my word. Let it abide in your heart. And there's another benefit to this, by the way. If his words abide in us, it will keep our prayers on track. I will not be so prone to asking amiss, as James said in his little book. You have not, because you ask not. And then he says, you ask amiss, you don't receive. And so, when he says to us, if you ask anything in my name, whatever you will. Now, that's, 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 that's a big broad stroke there, right there, isn't it? I mean, that covers a lot of territory, doesn't it? You say, well, what if, what if I ask something that's wrong? Well, hold on a minute. If the Word of God is living and abiding, if you're abiding in Him and the Word of God is abiding in you, there'll be less chance that you're going to ask amiss because you will not want to ask something that will dishonor His name. You won't. You will not want to ask something that will not glorify the Father. Whatever you're asking in prayer for, if you know God's Word, it will not dishonor His name it will not, and it will glorify the Father if you're asking a right the best way to ask a right is get to know his word because his word is his will. Are you still with me? And so we're teaching on Lord, teach us to pray. That's the title of these series of messages. So we're encouraging and trying to help in the area of prayer. This will help you pray. It'll help your prayers to be a little bit more focused. Now during your times of devotion, whenever or however you may do that, and I hope that you do do that. It's always a good thing. It's always the right thing to read or to meditate or to think about the Word of God. Now, we know that God speaks to us 
through his word. He speaks to us through his spirit. But his chief way to this very moment is speaking through his word by his spirit. In other words, as you begin to read the word of God and meditate upon the word, think about the word of God, speak the word of God, it's amazing how many times the Holy Spirit, who's the author of this word, will take this word, his word, and illuminate your heart. Make it make sense to you and make it personal to you. Make it a rhema word to you, a word for right now, for you. It may be for a million people on the face of the earth, but right now it's for you. It's a word for you. It's amazing how many times that will happen to you if you're abiding in him and his words are abiding in you. You may be praying about something for direction, for guidance, for focus, for something, for a decision to make, and suddenly a word will come up in your spirit. Something that you have read, something that you've known, something that maybe you've memorized, something that's been lodged deep into your spirit, the Holy Spirit will bring that up into your heart. And it can just encourage you or give you direction or guidance. And so, when you go to pray, and you go to seek the Lord, and you go to spend that 15 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever time you use, when you do it, here's, here's what you need to do. You need to get out the Word of God, or if you've got it on CD or tape to play it, you need to get the Word of God and start with that first. How many people, when you go to pray, you find, particularly if you go to do it in the morning and you're not a morning person, or you go to do it at night and you're not a night person, your mind's fuzzy, you know, and you get distracted, and before you know it, within two or three minutes, your mind's all over the place and you've even forgot you're praying. Thank you. One, one honest man in the whole congregation, well, there's two of us, I put my hand up there too, all right. The whole lot of us should have had communion after this, Clifford so they could repent it for their lies. A way to break that, a way to break that is the Word of God. Get out the Word of God and begin to read the Word of God. Now, maybe you've got a daily discipline in reading the Word of God. Maybe you're trying to go through the Bible in a whole year. Maybe you've got set pieces. That's fine. That's good. If you haven't, try something. Get some pattern in your life and begin to read the Word of God, even for the first 10 minutes. Maybe take just one chapter. Yeah, I don't mean just speed read through the thing, but maybe just take even two verses, just something that will get you focused on the Word of God. If you're focused on the Word of God, you're going to be focused on God, aren't you? So get that and do that. And when you do that, then when you go to pray, you'll have much more to pray about because your mind will be seated with the Word of God. Your spirit will be full of the Word of God. Psalm 119 is a great psalm. It's just full of the Word of God in this sense. That out of the 176 verses, 173 of those verses speaks about the law or the Word of God. The psalmist has 70 prayer requests in Psalm 119. So have a look at some of those and see what he's praying for. Maybe that'll encourage you in your prayers. In every single verse of Psalm 119, of all 176 verses, God's name is mentioned in all of them. 
The psalmist refers to himself 325 times in that psalm. So, in a sense, the whole psalm is a prayer psalm for him. It's a prayer he's praying, and he's quoting and reciting and meditating upon the Word of God. It's in his spirit. How did it get there? Because he read it. He put it there. Over and over and over and over again, in Psalm 119, God's Word is referred to as the law, or testimonies, or precepts, or statutes, or commandments, or judgments, or promises, or sayings of the Word, over and over and over again. It's a great psalm. One commentator called it a star of the first and greatest magnitude and a firmament of the psalms. And it truly is. And so, if you go to pray, just as an experiment, just try it, do you see? Before you go to pray, take out Psalm 119 and begin to look at it begin to meditate upon it, you might even read the whole thing through. And after you do, suddenly, when you go to talk to God, your mind and your heart is just full of those scriptures. You may also want to look at some prayers in the Bible, some great prayers in the Bible. And as you look at them, some of them you can personalize. And a classic example is in Ephesians chapter 1, in, in Paul's first prayer for the church at Ephesus. It's a great, great prayer. And it speaks not only to that church, but to this church, to you and to me. Just for example, you can personalize this. In verse 3, where he starts to pray, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed me with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose me in Him before the foundation of the world, that I should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined me to adoption as a son by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made me accepted in the Beloved. In Him I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of grace, which he made to abound towards me in all wisdom and prudence. And you get, the, you get the picture. So when you begin to, you say, well, can you do that? Well, when you read Psalm 23, you're doing it, aren't you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. David certainly made that personal, didn't it? And we read it as personal to us, isn't it? So you can do that. Where you, where you can do that, do that. And look at some of the great prayers of the Bible. Look at Abraham's prayers and Moses' prayers and the prophets' prayers and read those prayers and seed your spirit with those prayers. You know, I have a book at home and sometimes I lift it down and look at it and it was a, one of the old Puritan preachers and, and his prayers are actually written in the book as well as his sermons. And I tell you, you get more out of the prayers than you get out of the sermons. The prayers are absolutely brilliant. You know, so there's, there's all kinds of ways that can help us and encourage us uh, to do this. And of course then, you might want to pray God's Word. Because sometimes you go to pray and you've got your tick list and you've got a little list and you go through your list and that's it, but... Sometimes it becomes a bit humdrum doing that, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Anything that's habitual, you tend to just get a little bit blasé about it. So to break that cycle, 
maybe you should start praying the Word of God. You know, begin to thank God through His Word. And, and there's all kinds of scriptures that you can incorporate into that prayer, can't you? You know, I, I, I thank you, Lord, that you have made me to triumph in Christ. That's a scripture, isn't it? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things. You can look at Old Testament, New Testament, you go through all of them, and you begin to pray those scriptures, begin to pray those in your prayers, and just thank God as a positive affirmation of the Word of God. And it's good. God loves to hear that. You're reminding Him of His Word. Lord, I just want to remind you that in your Word you say, and then just say it. And the more you do that, the more your spirit and your heart is increased with the Word of God. And then you'll find sometime you're praying for somebody's need or, or some situation in your life. And, and, and as you have been praying the Word of God for all those suddenly a scripture will just come forth out of your heart and you'll just add that to your prayer. And it's wonderful. Amen. Well, you're looking kind of miserable. I don't know. You're, maybe you're just paying attention. All of this is going to help us when it comes to that asking anything in my name. Whenever we dwell on his name and all that that name entails and all the implications and ramifications of that name in our lives, whenever we think how that we're abiding in him and then how his word is abiding in us, and of course, finally, just for two minutes, our prayer is not complete unless we ask in faith, is it? Really isn't, sure it's not. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. James 1, 5, and 6. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that man suppose that he shall receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, and stable in all his ways. And so in all of our praying, and all of our asking, it's this little element of faith that's got to come in. If you have faith as what? A grain of mustard seed, not as a great big boulder a grain of mustard seed. Surely all of us has got that amount. Well, we have because the Bible says regarding the church that God has given to every man the measure of faith. So we have a lot going for us, haven't we? I think it's amazing to think, I mean, I, just reading this this week, afresh, preparing this for today, I, I'm just amazed the fact that we can come to our Heavenly Father in Christ's name. And there's such a vast opportunity. There's so much potential for us just to ask in His name. 
And I had to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I haven't been asking enough and big enough and well enough and focused enough in his name. Amen. So I mean to improve on that. And I would encourage you to do likewise. Amen. And so in this series, we have looked at prayer from different angles. We're not finished with it yet. And we have looked at the model prayer, our Father which art in heaven. We have looked at John 17, the great prayer of Christ, for, particularly for the church. We've looked at that. We've looked at prayer and fasting. We've looked at this today. There's other things we've got to look at. We've got to look at what hinders our prayers. Because if there's stuff hindering our prayers, then it doesn't matter what way we're praying. If, if there's stuff there that's hindering them, they're hindering them. So we need to look into that. So there's, there's lots, still some more to come yet. Amen. We haven't even begun hardly other than Christ. We just mentioned Paul, but we haven't even looked at some of the great prayers of Scripture. We'll maybe even do that. Just a few of those. Amen. All right, let's pray. Bless you, Lord. Lord, we give you thanks this morning for who you are. We thank you for your name, which is above every name. We thank you that the Father gave you that most excellent name. And it's in your name that we approach the very throne of grace today. So we thank you for our privileged position. Lord, what a joy it is. What an awesome privilege to be able to come right into your presence, right into the very throne room of the Father, because we come in his name, the name of Jesus. So Lord, in our prayers, help us, encourage us, because Lord, we want to seek your face. We want those breakthroughs. We want to feel, Lord, that our prayers are truly being answered. We want to see the manifestation. We want to see the results. We want to see it, Lord. We want to see it with our eyes. We want to know that it's happened. We live by faith. We know that, but we want to see results, Lord. So help us, Lord, to do this, that we may draw closer to you. And Lord, as we abide in you and your words abide in us, then we shall see breakthroughs like we've never seen before. Lord, minister your word and your spirit, Lord, to every heart and life today. May we leave this place encouraged and strengthened in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Amen. The last Sunday night of this month, Paul Selcock will be coming. It'll be kind of a little mini concert. He's just brought out a new CD called Reflections. It's in the bookshops. And he's going to be coming and he's going to set up and play for us and talk to us and all the rest of it. Uh, Paul was a young man when he was 15 years old. He used to play the guitar in that corner. And uh, I don't know what age Paul is now. Anybody know? 30s or something? 40, is he? Is he? Really? Yeah. Life's not fair. He, doesn't, he only looks about 25. 